Well, we are in the end of the book, Revelation. And, you know, we're coming toward the end. We're looking at the crash of Miss Babylon uh, these past few weeks, concluding with today. And then we get into chapter 19 next week, which uh, really begins to take us into the consummation of all things with the wedding feast of the Lamb, with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ on His white horse, King of kings and Lord of lords. And then we'll get into chapter 20, and we'll spend one, one of our weeks looking at four views of the millennium. That's a hot topic. And just as we did back in the fall when we looked at the four frameworks for interpreting all of Revelation, we'll do a similar thing before we start the study of Revelation 20. Uh, we'll look at the four views of what the millennium is and how to interpret it. And then, you know, we launch into the New Jerusalem in chapters 21 and 22, and we're, we're off Salem. Uh, I'm, I'm beginning to, to enjoy Revelation. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, as one of you said uh, to me a few weeks ago, you know, I think I'm starting to understand a few things about this book. Uh, of course, that's scary when you say that, you know. But uh, it's, I hope this book is becoming more your book uh, than it was when we started. That's, that was, as we say, one of our primary goals, that you get this book back as part of your functional canon in your Bible. Well, as we look at the end of chapter uh, 18 today, uh, the latter half of it, or actually more than half, will begin with verse 9. Let's review with where we've been on um, this idea of Babylon. Now, Babylon is seen in different ways depending upon which of those four views you take. We have said that Babylon is a picture of worldliness and that it's an idea and a system of worldliness that John is talking about. And we see that as she sits on the beast. It's very similar to one of the beasts that we studied earlier in Revelation. But we've said Babylon is worldliness, which is ugly, evil, alluring, temporary, and destructive. That's what we got in Revelation 17, uh, that uh, she's a powerful uh, woman, a powerful prostitute that uh, is at the same time very ugly, and also very beautiful, very alluring. And she's only here for a while. And that's what has given her a sense of desperation in trying to attract us. Last week we looked at the first eight verses of Revelation 18 and saw that she's going down. We don't want to go with her. So she's under complete judgment. It's as good as done. She's on her way down. She's been stripped of her cover. We see her for what she is. She's been judged. And now the thing for us is to be sure uh, that we don't go down as well. So now we're going to look at Revelation 18, 9 through 24. And what we're going to get are the reactions to Babylon's demise that will be quite different depending upon one's relationship to her and to God. So as we read this, we're going to see that there are different reactions to this crash uh, of Ms. Babylon uh, depending upon whether you have committed your life to her or whether you've come out of her because you've committed your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at, uh, beginning with verse 8, and let's look at these reactions to the fall of Babylon. Uh, verse 9, rather. Uh, when the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry. Woe, woe, O great city of O Babylon, city of power. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. 
cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. They will say, the fruit you longed for is gone from you. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off and terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea, will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, Was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, Woe, woe, O great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, flute players and trumpeters will never be heard in her in you again. No workman of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's great men. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of the saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. All right. That's a little piece of happy, happy devotional. We'll pick up your morning today. <clears throat> the first thing we want to notice, verses 9 through 19, is that those committed to Babylon will mourn her demise. They will be very sorry and saddened to see her go. There is a parallel in the Old Testament with this passage. And as we've seen, especially in chapter 17, 18, 19, John is picking up some of this rich language from the prophets in describing God's judgment on the secular city. And we see that in Jeremiah 51, for example. We'll see that again in a few moments. But here, you'll find it in Ezekiel 26 and 27 uh, on the judgment against Tyre, T-Y-R-E. And we'll look at this in a few moments. But there are many, many parallels with John's language about Babylon in chapter 18 and the language of Ezekiel about Tyre in Ezekiel 26 and 27. So obviously, John is seeing a similar judgment that's coming upon the whole system of worldliness as God had pronounced earlier on. Now, who are these who are committed to Babylon and who will mourn her demise? Well, you're going to find a threefold lamentation here. There are three groups that John is going to address. First of all, the monarchs or the kings of the earth. And if you'll take your Bibles and let's go ahead and look at Ezekiel 27, verses 33 through 35, we'll begin to see the parallel. 
27, 33 through 35. And here uh, Ezekiel says, when your merchandise went out on the seas, you satisfied many nations with your great wealth and your wares. You enriched the kings of the earth. He's using the same language, kings of the earth. This is now there, verse 34, Ezekiel 27, 34. Now you are shattered by the sea and the depths of the waters. Your wares and all your company have gone down with you. All who live in the coastlands are appalled at you. Their kings shudder with horror and their faces are distorted with fear. The merchants among the nations hiss at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. That language you're going to find reflected in our passage. Well, what's the first thing that we see? It is that they're really losing their lover. And uh, if you'll look at the language, you'll see that we are told that they committed adultery. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and shared her luxury. Now, you'll notice that sexual language is being used. She is called a sexual sinner. Worldliness is called a whore. And he is called a whoremonger or one that has committed adultery with the whore. Why, why this sexual language? Well, You'll see this fully played out when we get to chapter 19. And we're the bride and he's the groom. So the sexual imagery is being used both for something positive and for something negative. What's really underneath all of this is that what is happening with our allurement to worldliness and our commitment to it is that we are embracing another God. It's actually not just adultery, it's idolatry. And we've chosen another partner. We've chosen union with another woman instead of with the one that was given to us. So uh, this sexual imagery is simply used to illustrate how grotesque it is that we would give ourselves to the system of worldliness rather than giving ourselves to the worship of God. We'll come back to that in a few moments. So it is not the possession of wealth that's the problem. It is the arrogant use of it. You shared in her luxury. You arrogated to yourself the privilege to take what she was willing to give you uh, as your whore, and you just luxuriated in it yourself. It was just entirely selfish. So, uh, contrary to some popular belief, it is not a sin to have money in your bank account. Wealth is not a sin. It is the arrogant use of it. Now, we talked last week uh, and saw the strong language that's in the Bible about uh, the dangers of wealth and about the deep sin of using wealth only for our own self-aggrandizement. That is absolutely wrong. That will get you in a lot of trouble. But having wealth is not the problem. I, actually, for those of you who have considerable amounts of wealth who are committed to Christ, I just feel sorry for you. You get all these letters, people wanting you to support this, that, and the other, and you have to manage all that money. Uh, I'm just so happy not to have to manage that. And I, I'm sorry you have to manage it. I'm glad to have enough to eat and have a house over my head and all the rest. But uh, once you realize that the uh, responsibility given to a Christian man who is wealthy, and you really sit down and think about it, it's not all that charming. Uh, one of my friends who is very wealthy, I mean, just spends half his life deciding where to give his money away. I mean, that's a lot of fun. But you have to tell a lot of things, a lot of people in a lot of institutions know. 
And that's not a lot of fun. And also with one who has wealth, uh, sometimes I feel sorry for you because uh, if people know you're wealthy, you're not quite sure why they want to be friends with you. It can be very, uh, your relationships can be very superficial because the, the, the use and the power of wealth is such that you're not sure if someone's just trying to use you or not. And so I've always felt sorry for people who had to be stewards of more property than I have to be a steward of. Uh, on the other hand, uh, wealth is a gift and beauty is a gift and food is a gift and vacations are a gift. And as long as we are not arrogantly luxuriating in our wealth and we are deploying it for the kingdom of God, when it puts food on the table and when it provides beauty in our lives, we ought to thank God for it. All things are made for us. But just be very careful with it that you don't commit yourself to that wealth because as soon as you do, she's a whore. She's got you. And she's giving you something, you're giving her something, and now you've got yourself another God. That's what's going on here. They committed adultery with their wealth. How sick is that? And yet that's what hundreds of thousands, millions of people are doing. And you don't have to be wealthy to do that. You can commit adultery with your bank account. They shared in her luxury. And that means that they, whatever she permitted, whatever she considered legal and moral, the, these kings of the earth considered legal and moral too. Whatever the trade practices were, those are my practices. So the marketplace defines my morality. If it's legal, then it's okay. That's committing adultery with your wealth. When you start allowing the marketplace and the, the courts of the land to define what your ethics are in the marketplace, you have given yourself to another bride. You've let that define how you're going to live your business career. Gentlemen, you can't do that. Christians are committed to Christ. Christianos, Christian means little Christ. So we belong to Him. And what He decides for us, what is moral, what is ethical, what the standards of truthfulness and sharing and taking up other people's interests as well as our own, all of that is defined by Christ, not by the trade associations and what they consider to be ethical and legal. Okay, then they not only lose their lover, but now we see in the text they lament their loss. When the, when the kings see the smoke, several things happen. First of all, they weep and mourn. You see that in verse 9. They will weep and mourn over her. Does this mean that they're saying, oh, poor Babylon, I just feel so sorry for her. No. Crud. There she goes. You know, too bad for me. Because I've committed myself to that whore. Now she's gone. Now look, well, what happens to me? What happens to my life? Now she's gone. So they weep and mourn for themselves. They're so committed to her in that system of worldliness that when she crashes, they'll just simply be sorry that it's gone. No repentance, just weeping and mourning. They'll be terrified. So what happens when we see the system of worldliness going down, when we're committed to it? We're terrified not only for her, but for ourselves. And what can happen is that you can see this, that when, you know, when the stock market crashes, people dive out of the, the top windows <laughs> because that was all life. If I failed in the stock market, my life is over. And they, here they come out of the top windows of Wall Street when, in, in 1929 because they're just fearful. Everything crashes. Their whole life crashes. Why? 
Because they completely identified with that. They had no life outside of Babylon. They're helpless. They stand far off. What that means is they're just back off just watching it happen. There's not a blooming thing they can do about it. And I'm telling you, when the judgment of God comes, whether in time or at the end of time, there is not anything you can do about it. You'll just be standing far off just looking at it. They're clueless. Oh, great city, the kings say. City of power. Notice, she's tanking, and they're calling her a great city of power. They're clueless. Uh, They still don't get it. And they're so sad that this great city of power, you see, they've attached themselves not just to the wealth, but in this case, the kings of the earth have attached themselves to the power that's available to them through being associated with this powerful imperial city of worldliness. And then they'll be shocked because, as the text says, in one hour, verse 10, your doom has come. Like that! And Jesus says this over and over again, that it's going to come when you least expect it. It's going to be in a moment that Christ will return and judge the earth and you'll be judged in a moment. And everyone will be absolutely amazed, shock and awe, that this city is completely devastated in one hour. You see the phrase in one day in the previous chapter, but in this case, one hour. The second lament comes from the merchants of the earth. This is the longer text. They lose their load. No one buys their cargoes. And if we can turn back to Ezekiel 27 again, uh, I know it took you five minutes to find it in the first place. Now you've got to go back and get it again. Maybe it will be easier this time. Uh, you'll see, uh, in beginning with verse 7, a fine embroidered linen from Egypt was your sail and served as your banner. Your awnings were of blue and purple. And you can read all through there and you'll find many of the same materials that are mentioned in Revelation are mentioned right here in this judgment against Tyre. But in verse 13 in particular, Greece, Tubal, Meshach traded with you. They exchanged slaves and articles of bronze for your wares. They mentioned slaves there. If you'll look back now in, a, in a Revelation, at the very end of that list, bodies and souls of men, verse 13. And this is Revelation 18:13. The bodies and souls of men. So it's a... Bottom of the list, after the precious jewels and the animals, then it did, and this just shows you how they valued human life. Uh, you had the precious jewels and the animals, and then men sold them into slavery. And they were making money off of it. Why? Because Babylon was their god. Worldliness was their great achievement. Just think about it, how in some of the greatest sins in history, What's driving all of this? There's a system, an evil system, that is alluring men to commit themselves to it. And let me ask you, would there ever be a slave trade if there were no money in it? No. Nothing wrong with money. But there's something wrong with money when you commit your life to it as your Savior and you let it define how you're going to live your life. You let it define whether you're going to succeed or not succeed. Look what it would lead to. Even the trading of, of the souls of men in slavery. And then they lament their loss, just as the kings do. And you see that lament. Look at this language. Uh, Don't you see the commonality? They also, uh, in verse 15, stand far off. They also are terrified. They also weep and mourn, verse 15. Verse 16, they also are clueless. They say, whoa, 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 great city dressed in such beautiful clothing. 
Oh, oh, great whore. You're so beautifully dressed. Look at the gems around your neck and on your ears. Look at the lovely lipstick you're wearing. Hey, clueless. And then also in verse 17, in one hour such great wealth has been brought to ruin. You see in verse, um, in verse uh, 10, <clears throat> the kings speak of her as a great city because she has power. In verse 16, the merchants speak of her as a great city uh, because she has great wealth. Uh, in verse 17, great wealth has been brought to ruin in one hour. So one hour, if you've committed yourself to the, the power and the wealth of this world's order, in one hour it'll all be gone when God's final judgment comes. And the fact about God's judgment is it's already at work in the earth. You can already feel it coming and already having an effect. All right. Let's look thirdly at the third lament, which is the mariners of the earth. And they lose their livelihood. So even people who are a little further down on the food chain, a little further down on the totem pole, they also lose. And they lose their jobs. Verse 17b, every sea captain, all who travel by the ship, the sailors, and all who earn their living, all the longshoremen, will stand far off. Same language. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? Look at this irony. She's tanking. She's burning. She's on fire. And they just reminisce. Boy, what a great city that was. Just too bad to see it go. They don't really get the picture. And then they will throw dust on their heads and with, once again, weeping and mourning, they will cry out, whoa, whoa, O oh, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. And then once again, in one hour, she has been brought to ruin. So you can see in the way John is hearing the voice of this uh, mighty one. If you go all the way back to verse 2, you see it's uh, um, our vo- voice 1. He says, I saw another angel. And verse 2, with a mighty voice he shouted. So this is still the voice of that angel who's telling us what's going to happen to the monarchs, the merchants, and the mariners. And in three stanzas, you get this repetitive uh, woe over the great city that is coming down. They lament their loss just as the monarchs and the merchants do. So, we see that Babylon is ugly and beautiful at the same time. She is... Very destructive. She's very alluring. She's very deceitful. And the worldliness that's in your life, it's all around you. Even here in this room, and then when you walk out here to go to your place of business, worldliness will be all around you. And it'll be very, very attractive. But it's already been damned. It's already been condemned. So we saw that Babylon is coming down. And we're being warned, pull out. Don't go down with her. Don't commit yourself to her. Don't participate in this uh, prostitution. And then we see that when she does go down, those who have committed themselves will be unable to see the goodness of her going down. They'll only be sorry for themselves because their whole life was wrapped up in it. She had a hook into them 
And they go down with her in weeping and mourning and total helplessness and total cluelessness. So when Babylon is judged, those who have connected themselves with her will go down with her. Now, secondly, if you look at verses 20 through 24, we get this principle. Those separated from Babylon, those who actually came out, are going to celebrate her demise. They're not going to weep and mourn. They're going to rejoice. And this will play itself out all the way into chapter 19. We'll see it has a larger story than we can cover today. We're just getting started. But let's look, for example, at Jeremiah 51 again. We've looked there before to see the parallels that are here. Verse 48 and verse 49. Verse 48 says, this is a judgment, of course, against Babylon, the literal Babylon. Uh, if you look in verse 47, God says, this is Jeremiah 51:47. For the time will surely come when I will punish the idols of Babylon. Her whole land will be disgraced. And her slain will all lie fallen within her. So the prediction is coming that there will be a total judgment on Babylon. Then in verse 48, look at this. Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For out of the north, destroyers will attack her, declares the Lord. Babylon must fall because of Israel's slain just as the slain in all the earth have fallen because of Babylon. You who have escaped the sword, leave and do not linger. Remember the Lord in a distant land and think on Jerusalem. Is that, you know, by the time we get to Revelation 21 and 22, you'll see we're going toward Jerusalem. So obviously the fulfillment of everything promised here in, Re- in Jeremiah 51 is being fulfilled by the vision that John has in Revelation 17 through 22. So, come out of Babylon, we're told. She's going to be judged. The saints will rejoice. Why? Because of the slain of God's people, the slain of Israel. You come on out of her and keep your thoughts on Jerusalem because that's where you're headed. That's what we get out of Jeremiah. All right? Now back to Revelation. First of all, this celebration, if you'll look in verse 20. The angel is simply saying, the angel is with a loud voice giving a commandment, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. I would say to you, this is really speaking to both heaven and earth. There is a commandment that comes down from on high to be joyful. For everyone who belongs to God in heaven and on earth, when the judgment against Babylon is given... And even as we hear it given now, even as we know she is completely doomed, and you can already see the signs of it, every saint, every angel, every apostle, every martyr is to give thanks and rejoice. Okay? So we are not going to be those who stand off, weep and mourn, throw dust on our heads and say, oh, what a beautiful city that was. What a powerful city. What a wonderful thing worldliness was. Wasn't it fun to fool around with a prostitute? No, sir. Not us. We're going to rejoice. Why? Because of her treatment of the saints. If you'll look at the language, it says in 20b, God has judged her for the way she treated you. Literally, what's being said there is because God judged your judgment 
from her. So God looked at the judgment she put on you, and He returned the same judgment to her. Uh, The NIV translates it, God has judged her for the way she treated you. This is most interesting, isn't it? That God is causing us to rejoice over those who have afflicted us and are now being afflicted by God. Uh, Let's look at some texts in the Scriptures. Uh, Turn in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 19 with me for just a moment. And I want us to see an important principle that's in the moral law of God. Deuteronomy 19. And look at uh, verse 16 through 19. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse a man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, Then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. So if what's being said there in a court of law, if a false uh, accuser comes, whatever he was, whatever punishment would have come upon the one he was falsely accusing is to come upon him. That's because it reflects God's image. Those who have been falsely accusing God's people calling you stupid, idiotic, prudish, uh, and all the rest, and in Rome's day, calling us those who were trying to undermine the government itself because we had a higher king, all those false accusations that came. And you know, uh, Augustine wrote his City of God to disprove that. And he showed how the Christians were the ones who were supportive of the state, not undermining it. At the same time that we don't call Caesar our emperor, We call only Christ our emperor. We're the ones who support the civil government, as Paul says in Romans 13. But we've been falsely accused of many, many things. And whatever it is that was to come upon us because of those false accusations are going to go back upon those who are making those accusations in the first place. Turn over a few more pages in Deuteronomy to Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Here you have the song of Moses toward the end of his life. In verse 35, he says, quoting God, It is mine to avenge, I will repay. In due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. Then look at verse 43. Here's the commandment to rejoice. Rejoice, O nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies and make atonement for his land and people. Then turn to Psalm, and and you can stay in the Psalms for a minute because we're going to survey some other verses in the Psalm. But let's let's look uh, initially at Psalm 96. 
there's an important principle here that's going to help us with anger management. Verse 90, uh, this is Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13. The psalmist says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord. Why? He's calling upon inanimate creation. All the trees of the field, all the fish of the sea, let everything rejoice. Why? Because He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His truth. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. That is what the, that hymn is all about. He comes to judge the earth. Let us be glad. Because now vengeance will be wreaked upon all of our enemies. You're saying it doesn't sound very Christian to me. Well, we're going to come back to that. But I want you to leave your finger in Psalm 96 because you're coming back to the Psalms and some of you won't be able to find it again. But go back, hold it there and look back in Revelation 18. And look at the joy that's being found here when the judgment comes. What happens? A mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. He didn't just pick up a little rock and toss it on the ground. He picked up a huge boulder as big as a millstone. This is a millstone that an ox would turn to grind wheat. This thing's huge. You know, a dozen men couldn't pick it up. This mighty angel picks up this boulder. Doesn't just, doesn't just drop it. He throws it. He hurls that huge stone. And he doesn't just throw it in the ground. He throws it in the sea, never to be found again. So this huge millstone is hurled down upon the sea to symbolize that Babylon has been finally judged and is at the bottom of the sea, never to be resurrected. She's gone. That's the judgment. And then look at this phrase, no more. Never to be found again. What's not to be found? Music, never to be heard. Workmanship, never to be found. Light, never to shine. Love, never to be heard again. Why? Because by your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. What was worldliness doing? It was leading astray the nations. What, what are we exporting today? We know we're not exporting enough. <laughs> our trade, our imbalance. My stars, talk about debt. The debt we owe the world, we're just consuming the world's goods right now. But when we export, what do we export? Well, we export Hollywood. We export our pornography. That's the reason that one reason we have such a lousy reputation in the Mideast. The movies that go over there from America are about the worst representation you can think of of any decent people. We're exporting our worldliness. There are many good things that go with the Western economy, as you know. Uh, it's based on a democratic idea, which is based on the respect for an individual person and his, his natural right to freedom. But then along with that, we've abused our privileges and we've become arrogant with our possessions and we are teaching other people how to do the same. And all the while, I'll tell you this as one who's been on the mission field and seen the West roll into a nation. 
for example, in the CIS states, uh, before the West got out there, there was a hunger for spiritual things. What you find now is that hunger has just been just been satiated with worldly things, and they're much more interested in what kind of television set they can get and what kind of a CD player they can get than they are in whether they can get a Bible and get the gospel. So what you find is with this wave of worldliness that we represent around the world, that it deadens the spiritual life and it leads people astray because it leads them to think that what you're supposed to get out of life, you can get it in three score and ten. That's what worldliness teaches them. You're supposed to suck it out of this material world, and the more you can get of it, the smarter you are. That's the lesson that's going from our culture to the rest of the world. That's the lesson that has always gone from Rome and from Babylon and from the other major epicenters of the world. That's the pride of the human city. And you can see that that is the judgment of God against her. The number one judgment is that she is leading people away from things that are really important. And when you and I decide that we're going to work a few more hours in the week so that we can make a few more dollars and we take a few more hours away from our children and from our wife and from doing the things that renew life in worship and devotion, and we decide that's going to be what I'm going after. Oh, it'll only take a while, honey. Let me just give the next 5 or 10 or 15 years to this, and then I think maybe we can move toward retirement. And we just dive in with everything that we have. What you're basically saying is, I'm not going to live life for the next decade. I'll think about living life the next decade. That's adultery. And you've taken on another bride. It's your bank account, your business, something else other than what's really important in the marriage. And what God is saying, when you do that with Him, and you put Him on the back shelf for one moment, you've just committed adultery. You've just decided there's another bride in your life. And I see guys doing this all the time, and they make the excuse, well, it's really not for me, it's for her. It is not for her, it's for you. Because you want to think of yourself as a wealthy Provider for your wife and children. Meanwhile, you're sacrificing your soul. That's no sacrifice to make. So, gentlemen, uh, this is the big charge, is that the system of worldliness, which is seeking to allure you every day, leads you astray, and then it leads other people astray, starting with your family. What lessons do you think are picked up when you play games like that from those who are watching you? It's leading other people astray. And there's the judgment right there. So let's, as God's people, let's be sure we hear His judgments. Let's be sure we hear what He cares about. Let's be sure that we're not being led astray nor leading other people astray with a system of worldliness that's all around us and in us, in our flesh. So that's the judgment that she leads other people astray. And then verse 24, the judgment is, guess what we found in her? The blood of prophets and saints and of many people killed around the world. She'll take lives in order to advance the dollar, bottom line. Take lives. Murder. And not only that, she will absolutely oppose the church and try to distort her message in order to advance her worldly kingdom. That's the power of Babylon. And that's the reason for the judgment that is coming. So when she goes down, gentlemen, let all heaven and earth rejoice. Because God's vengeance has come upon those who have opposed the saints and their worship. Look, in chapter 16, we saw the seven plagues. The plagues were just like the plagues against Egypt, weren't they? That's where the parallel was. Now, what was Egypt doing? They were enslaving God's people, yes. But that wasn't even the biggest sin. 
The biggest sin of Pharaoh was that he kept the people of God from their worship. Moses said, Pharaoh, give us a break. We want the Sabbath off because we want to go out into the wilderness a little way and simply offer some sacrifices to God. That was the first request. Pharaoh said, get back to work. What are you talking about? And then seven times Moses said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me. The big deal with worldliness is this. The intentionality of Babylon is this. To take your mind and heart away from the worship of Almighty God and to give you a cheap, whore substitute. That's the big game plan of evil. That's the reason God is coming down with great vengeance. That's the reason the plagues were offered in Egypt. That's the reason for the plagues against the system of worldliness today. What happens is that we think that worship is useless. It's a royal waste of time. What good does it do to go sing a few songs, to bow on your knees and praise the Lord, to offer a few prayers to Him and listen to the Bible? What good does that do anybody? I need to be out there doing something important, we say. That's the big subversion of worship from the inside. And on the outside, it is to obstruct the people of God from their worship. That's been the strategy of worldliness and the great, powerful, and wealthy city ever since the city of Babel itself. That's what's going on here. That's the reason for the sexual imagery. That's the reason she's called a whore. Because she's ugly and she's taking you away from your real love. And so you have sex with her and you pay for it and it's over. And it's not based on a commitment. But the relationship with Christ is also used by sexual imagery here to explain that is also an intimate relationship. But it's based on commitment, mutual commitment between Christ and us. He will never destroy us. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will always protect us. No matter what you think your financial situation is, He will always care for you because you were His brother. So you see the comparison then with the whore in Babylon and the bride of Christ marrying her bridegroom in this next chapter, in chapter 19. And you see how much God cares about our worship and our devotion to Him in private and in public. We're to be worshipers primarily. Now, if you're having a hard time with our rejoicing over the destruction of uh, worldliness and those attached to it, I'm going to ask that you look at a few verses in the Bible in Psalms and turn, first of all, to chapter 11 and look at this with me. Now, let's look first at Psalm 10. And let's just let our fingers do the walking through the pages here for a minute and just look at some verses with me. Psalm 10, verse 15 Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. There's a good prayer for you. Break his arm. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. Look at the next Psalm, 11. Look at uh, 6, verse 6. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur, a scorching wind will be their lot. Look at 17, 14. 
O Lord, by your hands save me from such men, from men of this world whose reward is in this life. You still the hunger of those who you cherish. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for their children. Then look at 21. Verse 11. Though they plot evil against you and devise wicked schemes, they cannot succeed, for you will make them turn their backs when you aim at them with drawn bow. God is shooting bows and arrows at the evil. Look at Psalm 53. Another Psalm of David. Verse 5. 53.5 There they were overwhelmed with dread where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame for God despised them. Pretty strong language. Look at 58. 6. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Tear out, O Lord, the fangs of the lions. So, Lord, break their teeth and then pull their teeth out. 69. 28, may they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. It's pretty strong language also. Look at 83. Fourteen. Eighty-three, fourteen. As fire consumes the forest or a flame sets the mountains ablaze, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Psalm 109, verse 18. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. Verse 20. May this be the Lord's payment to my accusers, to those who speak evil of me. Look at 110. Verse 6, He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. So He's just going to pile up the dead bodies. Then look at 139. (coughs) Here it gets kind of gory. Verse 19, 139.19, If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, when you read Psalm 139 in the prayer book, that will be taken out. Uh, or when it's read in the Presbyterian church. We often just delete those verses. We don't want that read in public worship. Now, lastly, turn, turn back a page to Psalm 137. <clears throat> and let's look at this for just a moment. And I want to talk to you about the judgment of God and why we're told to rejoice over this. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Okay? Now, get the picture. The... People of God have been exiled by cruel treatment by the Babylonians. 
They've been taken in exile all the way to Iraq from, from the Holy Land. They're in Babylon. They're in exile. They're away from home. They're weeping because they miss Jerusalem. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing us one of your Sunday school uh, songs. Verse 4, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Okay, you see the mentality while they're in exile? Just like we're in exile. We're going to Jerusalem. We're citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. That's our home. We're in exile here. And may our tongues cling to the roof of our mouths if we forget Jerusalem. And if we sell out and say, oh, I just, you know, this Babylon thing ain't too bad after all. You, know, you can have a pretty good life here. May I, may I die. May my right hand wither and perish. May I cease to be able to make a living if I ever start thinking like that. My mind is in Jerusalem, he says. Now look at the third stanza. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. These, this is the neighbors who are just across in Jordan. And as the, they saw the Babylonians coming and destroying Jerusalem and taking them into exile, they said, Oh, goody, tear it down, Babylonians. We don't like those Jerusalemites either. Tear it down to its foundations, they said. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is he who repays you for what you have done to us. Look at this. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. Happy are you who do that, they say. Gentlemen, you're thinking, how in the world can this be? I thought this looks like very unchristian language. I thought we're supposed to forgive our enemies. We'll come back to that. But for a moment, stay on this with me. There is an anger that arises up in our breast when injustice takes place. It's very obvious to see. Uh, if you heard or read the transcript of Lacey Peterson's mother's word to Scott Peterson in the courtroom, and she said, you know, you deserve all this and you deserve all that, and this will not be compared to the judgment you're going to get when you rot or burn in hell. That's what she said. And there was a sense in which, in her visceral anger, she was taking delight in his suffering as he heads on his way to death row and in his burning in hell for eternity. Now, that's one reason I don't think that families ought to be allowed to speak in court like that, frankly, because the court is meant to speak for the state. Because when someone murders, they commit a crime against the state and against God. So the state takes up the cause and speaks, not the family. It's no longer a personal matter. So I'm, I'm not in favor of that. All, the only reason I mention it is to say, if someone killed your little girl or your little grandson, you'd feel the same way. All I'm saying is this is the natural feeling. Now, what is the way in which the believers have dealt with this? You can either do what Lacey Peterson's mother did and get every opportunity you can to pour out invective against the person and try to make them as miserable as they have made you. Or you can pray with anger and hatred. Now, this, this is a strange thing, but it's, it's in the book. I, I'm not making this up. I just read you all those verses. 
Did you see how David and the psalmist deal with anger? They take it to the Lord and say, Lord, deal with my enemies. If your prayer life does not include your enemies, let me tell you where they're included. They're included in invective, in language, and in vengeance that you're trying to take upon them. The prayer life of saints has always involved anger about the injustice committed to them and a request to God that He deal with their enemies. And He does. That is how the believer is able to forgive his enemies. That is how the believer is able to return kindness for the evil that comes to him. It's not because he's milk toast, Not because he's a doormat. Not because he's a wimp. But because he's talked to the one who's going to do something about it. My big brother happens to be Jesus. You'd be in trouble. So I'll be real nice to you. What do I have to do with this? My brother's taking care of this. You've got to deal with him. I kind of feel sorry for you. Because <laughs> I've, I've seen my brother in action before. And, you know, if you get on his wrong side, you, you are in bad shape. So the more you mistreat me, the more you're going to account to him. See, this is the way the believer deals with vengeance and anger control. Vengeance control and anger control. We deal with God. And He is real. And He is just. And there is a day of judgment. And she's going down. And all those who have committed themselves to her and have taken the blood of the saints, they're going down too. So, bottom line is, I think I have one minute. Let's deal with some implications here. And they look like this. We must know and love God as He is. If He's a God of vengeance, you better get to know Him. If He's a God of wrath, you better get to know Him. We better not only know Him, but we must worship Him. We must rejoice in Him as He is. Not rejoice in Him the way you want Him to be, like your nice dear old uncle, and you hope God's just like that. He's not! He's like what He's revealed in the Bible. Get to know Him and worship Him and love Him. And get connected to Him. And take Him as He is, not as you want Him to be. Some people want God to be nicer than He is. He's just. He's holy. He's good. And then we must have compassion on those who have committed themselves to Babylon. And we must wait for God's vengeance rather than exercise our own vengeance. This is one of the key ethical outcomes of our understanding the judgment of God. We are going to be nicer. We are going to be gentler. We are going to be returning good for the evil committed against us. This is one of the ethical keys to understanding the purpose for Revelation being written in the first place to these churches who were being persecuted. They were not to respond in kind because there was a day coming. And gentlemen, it's coming. And your Lord is Lord of all the earth. And you will be avenged if you are one of His. If you're not, today is the day to get on the right side. And He's begging you to come over and love Him and give your life to Him. He will take you, He will protect you, and He will defend you against all of His and your enemies. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your great power. We praise You for everything that You are, a God of infinite love and grace and mercy, and a God of justice and of wrath, even a God of vengeance against those who have hurt us. And Lord, we are awestruck at Your love for us. It is such a jealous love that anything that touches us will be in trouble with You. 
And Lord, grant us the peace that comes from knowing that, that we may be the people of peace, even with our enemies, because we talk to you about them rather than to others. So, Lord, hear our prayers and make us your faithful people in this day of living in exile in Babylon, waiting eagerly for the day of Jerusalem to be revealed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.